Intelligent design. Was the universe designed by an intelligent agent, or is it just the result of impersonal processes? This topic has stirred a firestorm of controversy and continues to do so. And today, you're going to hear one of the leading experts and leaders in the intelligent design movement. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Pat, introduce our guest. Yes, Kevin. Once again, this week is our guest, Dr. Jay Richards. Jay Richards is a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute. He received his doctorate in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. So welcome back to the show, Dr. Richards. Great to be with you. Well, we're going to highlight your book and DVD, The Privileged Planet. In fact, this is one of the only DVDs that was shown at the Smithsonian Institute, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was during the premiere period after the documentary came out in 2004 and 2005. A premiere was scheduled for the Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and many of us thought, well, this is, yeah, this is great. You know, we had a reception in the Hall of Gems, which has a lot of interesting geological uh, imagery and evidence, so we thought it was a really nice venue for it. But after the invitations were sent out, skeptics on the other side and the hardcore Darwinists and materialists instigated a letter-writing campaign. It even led to the skeptic James Randi, the magician, offering the Smithsonian $20,000 to pull the showing of the film. Frankly, what this led to was a huge amount of free publicity for the event. The event happened anyway, and I think it does show, though, the, the degree of hostility that some people have to any evidence of design. Yes, we're hearing a lot about it, even at the presidential debates regarding evolution and intelligent design in the public schools. Well, Jay, you guys are some real troublemakers. I mean, everywhere you go, you're getting people upset. And uh, at the SMU conference, there were protests and yes. um, and even students who would hold up signs in the middle of the conference. Boy, this is an emotional area. Uh, I mean, it's evoking an emotional response about things that are particles, little blobs of protoplasm that don't have any emotion. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, the reality is, is that when you're dealing with these really broad questions about uh, whether there's purpose and design in the universe or not. Uh, these are scientific debates that take place at the level of the scientific evidence, but they clearly have broad metaphysical implications. I mean, this is why there's a battle in certain parts of the country on people's bumpers between the Jesus fish and the Darwin fish. You know, that's not a coincidence. You don't see Newton fish, you know, or gravity fish. Darwinism and materialism more generally has strong metaphysical and philosophical assumptions and implications, and there's just no getting around that. So any talk of intelligent design is bound to bring the local skeptics out of the woodwork. Well, tell us about your thesis regarding the privileged planet. What's it all about? Sure. The, the book, The Privileged Planet, focuses on the evidence for design and astronomy, and our basic argument is this. We argue in the book that all those things you need to build a habitable planet also produce the best overall settings for scientific discovery. So in other words, observers find themselves in the universe in the best places overall for observing. So when you get a habitable planet with the right kind of atmosphere and the right kind of star and the right kind of solar system and the right place and the right kind of galaxy, you also get the best setup overall for doing astronomy and for doing cosmology and for discovering the kinds of things you'd need to be able to discover around the universe to answer a lot of the big questions. And Guillermo Gonzalez and I, my co-author, argue then that this evidence is best explained in terms of design. So the universe not just designed for life, but designed for scientific discovery itself. Well, you know, a lot of scientists teach that our planet is really nothing special in the universe. There are probably 
uh, many other planets among the billions of planets out there that are like ours. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, it's certainly the sort of thing that could have been true, certainly when we knew very little. I mean, we look out into the night sky and we know there are billions of galaxies and in many cases billions of stars inside those galaxies. So when you're just looking at that side of the equation, you think, well, if there's life here, there must be life countless places elsewhere. The problem is is that we've got a lot of specific knowledge now about what you need to build a habitable planet, that is a planet like the Earth that can host life. And when you start adding those things up, the probabilities actually get small very, very quickly. And so on the one side of the equation, you have all the sort of opportunities where you could have a habitable planet. But on the other side, you have all these fractions, these small probabilities that you have to multiply together. So the chances of getting a moon to stabilize your planet's axis, the chances of getting your planet in the right place around its star, having the planet be the right size, the right atmosphere, the right geology, all those things. You're multiplying numbers less than one, and as we learned uh, in the third grade, when you multiply fractions less than one, the total outcome ends up much smaller than one. So even if you have, say, 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, you still have to figure out what the probabilities of getting a single habitable planet are before you have any handle on the sense of whether they're likely to be lots of other Earth-like planets in the universe. Well, several critics of the design argument, for example, one here, John Allen Palos, you know, this is what he states, rarity by itself shouldn't necessarily be evidence of anything. When one is dealt a bridge hand of 13 cards, the probability of being dealt that particular hand is less than one in six billion. Still, it would be absurd for someone to be dealt a hand, examine it carefully, calculate that the probability of getting it is less than one in 600 billion, and then conclude that he must not have been dealt a very good hand because it is so very improbable. So I guess what he's arguing is that improbable, mm-hmm. rare things happen all the time. Isn't That's Earth right. just one of those improbable events that it, it all it, came together? Yeah, that would be the case if that was the only part of our argument. And this is exactly why we didn't argue in the privileged planet for design based simply on the rarity of an Earth-like planet. It's true, of course. You could have a lottery, for instance, with a billion tickets. And if a billion people buy each of those tickets, then there's one in a billion chance that any particular person will win, but there's a probability of one that is absolute certainty that someone will win, and that's the point. Uh, On the other hand, let's say you have a bridge hand or a poker hand in which you just play a few hands, and the same person gets royal flushes three times in a row. At this point, you've got a rare event, highly improbable event, but everybody perfectly well knows that a better explanation in that scenario is going to be that the person cheated or it was somehow rigged, rather than just saying, well, rare things happen, so let's just leave it to chance. We do this all the time. We separate out chance events uh, from designed events, and we do it because they are not only improbable, but they conform to some kind of meaningful pattern. That's why you're going to compare the best explanations for an event. And in our book, The Privileged Planet, we don't just say, you've got to get a lot of stuff right to build a habitable planet So Earth-like planets are rare, therefore they must be designed. That by itself, first of all, it would require that we have exact probabilities for knowing, you know, that we've swamped all the the opportunities in the universe. We don't have those probabilities. The other thing is that we argue that it's the coincidence of the things that you need for life and the things you need for science. That's the pattern that allows us to infer design. So just like the, the fishy pattern you'd get when you get three royal flushes in a row in a game of poker, the same way if you discover that there are only very few places in the universe where life can exist, and then to find after the fact that those are also the best places for doing science, 
That's just the thing you would expect if the universe were designed for discovery, but you would not expect it in a purely purposeless or material universe. And so the best explanation, we think, given the alternatives, is that the universe is designed for discovery. That's the hypothesis that, is, that would explain this evidence before us. Yes, you know, you're building a cumulative case argument. You're not just focusing in one area, but we're seeing these patterns of apparent design in almost every area of the sciences, aren't we? Yes, that's right. I mean, you can either an argument in the privileged planet, which is a cumulative case, so we uh, deal with the evidence from uh, the, the solar system, the stuff you need for the pl different planets, the stuff you need in geology, the things you need in the right kind of star, which is a stellar astronomy. That's a cumulative case for our particular argument. And then you can build a cumulative case for design across the scientific disciplines, because there's design arguments in cosmology, there's design arguments in physics that talk about the fine-tuning of the laws of physics, You've got our argument, the privileged planet argument, which is in astronomy, and then you've got evidence for design, the origin of life and the complexity of life and arguments like the book Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe and another discipline so that you build up case after case across the scientific disciplines for design. And then you say, look, we're not trying to do a mathematically deductive proof of something. You're saying, what is the best explanation of the alternative? And at some point, it is much more reasonable to infer design rather than simply to commit yourself to a, a materialism despite the evidence. You know, Jay, you touched a little bit on what some people call the anthropic principle. Mm -hmm. And one of the aspects of that is if the universe wasn't finely tuned as you say it is and have all the, has all these coincidences and, that permit life and so on, well, then we wouldn't be here to observe it. <laughs> and so, uh, therefore, we shouldn't be surprised at these coincidences and our position and so forth. Yeah. You know, so this, what, I mean, what's, what's an answer to that? That's the popular response to the so-called anthropic coincidences or the fine-tuning. So, yeah, I've, well, but if it were different, we wouldn't be here to see it. Now, when people ask me this, I always say, okay, now, do you actually think that's persuasive? Because I want to know. Uh, and the reason is because you're not, we're not trying to explain why we observe a universe compatible with our existence. Uh, that's obvious. We wouldn't be able to observe a different kind of universe. The question is, why does that type of universe exist in the first place. Uh, it's confusing uh, the conditions for observing something and taking that as if it's an explanation for where the thing came from in the first place. Mm, example, yeah. You know, the example I like to use is the famous firing squad uh, illustration, that you could have a person uh, that's sentenced to death by execution by a firing squad, ten sharpshooters, you know, five feet away, the person is blindfolded, the ten sharpshooters shoot, and they all miss. And let's say they all miss and make a perfect outline of the uh, the executee on the wall behind him. Now, you could do two things, right? You could say, well, this um, must have been rigged. Everybody must have conspired not to shoot me. Uh, because, you know, I mean, that, you know, it just very much looks like this must have been uh, thought up beforehand. That is, he could infer design. But he could say, well, I really shouldn't be surprised to see this, because if you had shot me, then I wouldn't be observing it. Now, we know he was making some kind of serious intellectual mistake at that point. Uh, because the question isn't why is he observing this, but why on earth did they miss in the first place? And so uh, the, 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 this sort of uh, counter-response to the evidence for design and fine-tuning, uh, it confuses uh, what you need to explain something, why you observe something with explaining why that thing you're observing exists in the first place. Yeah, Jay, expand a little more on fine-tuning. I mean, one of the examples you guys bring up in your book is mm -hmm. yeah, even the force of gravity 
You know, if that's just altered just a little bit, you know, we couldn't have life in the universe. That's right. And what's important to realize is that we're not just talking about life exactly like the Earth, but life that had any kind of uh, mechanism for building complexity. So gravity, for instance, which is this attractive force, that's actually a very weak force. It requires these large uh, bodies in order to really even detect it. But it's the force that holds the galaxy together. It's the force that holds us on the surface of the Earth. It keeps us orbiting the sun, but if the force of gravity were just slightly different, so slightly weaker or stronger than it actually is, uh, the complex universe like we have simply wouldn't be possible. I mean, you could think of all these other forces like electromagnetism or the so-called weak nuclear force that holds the parts of a nucleus of an atom together. Keep all those the same, and if you were just able to change gravity just slightly, uh, you'd end up with a universe where you couldn't have molecules or atoms or uh, planets or galaxies all these things that you need to build life. And it's, this is the sort of thing that really wasn't realized until the 1960s when we started getting a grip on the detailed mathematical expressions of these physical laws that are true the same, they're the same everywhere. That's why we call them constants. Gravity is the same on the surface of the Earth as it is in a distant galaxy. Uh, this is what has led a lot of physicists to su- suspect that there's something like uh, purpose or design in the universe. It just looks very much set up as if the universal constants of physics rest on a razor's edge. Uh, let me read to you a quote from Richard Dawkins in his book, The Blind Watchmaker. He's an atheist scientist, one of the best-selling atheist scientists out there. And he says this, To explain the origin of the DNA protein machine by invoking a supernatural designer is to explain precisely nothing, for it leaves unexplained the origin of the designer. You have to say something like, God was always there. And if you allow yourself that kind of lazy way out, you might as well just say DNA was always there or life was always there and be done with it. What do you have to say to that? Well, I mean, this is amusing, but of course we detect design all the time without even considering the question where the designer came from. If I look at Mount Rushmore and say, well, that's almost certainly sculpted, I wouldn't have to have any information about the sculptor. I could still infer design, and Dawkins could show up and say, ah, but where did the sculptor come from? I mean, the guy would just be obtuse because that's a secondary question. The primary question is, can we detect design, and if so, is there design in this particular uh, instance? Where that designer came from is a secondary question. Now, let's, let's ask that secondary question then. Dawkins said, well, if you're going to have recourse to saying the designer was always there, you could just say DNA was always there, except that we know DNA was not always there. I mean, Dawkins is ignoring what he himself knows. We know that the physical universe is not eternal, it's finite. We know the Earth is not eternal, it's finite. We know that DNA, for instance, has got a particular lifespan on it, so you can't have DNA for eternity. So matter, life, DNA, the Earth, none of these things are good candidates for ultimate explanation. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, if you consider the possibility of design, and especially design of the cosmos as a whole, you say, well, we know matter isn't eternal, but we don't have any direct empirical evidence that, uh, that an intelligence, perhaps especially uh, in a theistic view, uh, that uh, an intelligent God uh, could not be eternal. In fact, that's normally taken to be the very definition of God, is the, the uh, ultimate being, that than which none greater can be conceived. And so we, the real question is, when you get to the level of ultimate explanation, is the material universe or a theistic God, a better candidate for ultimate explanation? And the answer to that question is obvious. We know that matter is a terrible candidate for ultimate explanation simply because it's not eternal. So Dawkins himself knows that that's a bad argument. Yeah, Jay, well, how about the objection that uh, other atheists will bring up? They say, well, the universe just exploded into being, and it appears to be designed. For example, one I hear is, I believe it's called fairy circles, where mushrooms 
spout these spores, and, and the next day you wake up and you got these other mushrooms in a circle. You know, and people think, oh, a circle. It must be designed by some fairies or something that come at night. So <laughs> the universe exploded, and it just appears to be designed. Well, of course, there's lots of geometrical structures in the universe that we don't think are directly designed. I mean, a star, for instance, is a spherical sub, uh, structure that's perfectly well explained by uh, gas in the void of space plus gravity over time is going to bring the gas together in a, a spherical shape. So uh, just because something has a geometric uh, structure doesn't mean... It is itself directly evidence for design. But ultimately, you're always going to come back to what are the specific properties by which we infer design. Uh, we do it every day. We do it when we read text. You're doing it right now when you're listening to my voice. We uh, infer the existence of intelligent agent by its effects, not directly. We don't put agents under microscopes. Uh, and so we try to get very specific when we reliably infer design in everyday life what is it by which we infer design, and then do we find those same things in nature, or do we not? And those are the kinds of specific arguments that design theorists are make, making that a lot of the skeptics are, frankly, completely ignoring. Well, here's another objection we often hear, Jay. You know, the universe may show design. Okay, I may grant you that, but there are many flaws in the design, whether the creation of our universe or in biology or chemistry. Yeah, why are avocado pits so big? <laughs> Now, yeah. that is truly the hard, hard question. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a popular objection, the so-called dysteleological objection, that there's bad design in the universe. Well, when I hear this, first of all, it's important to realize that that's not an argument against design. Uh, you know, Windows 95 was designed, even if it wasn't perfectly designed. And so a design argument is simply that. It's an argument that something was designed. It wasn't, it's not an argument that, well, it couldn't have been designed differently or in a better way. Uh, but that said, I usually want the specific examples because a lot of these bad design arguments actually fall apart on closer inspection. A popular one for years was the so-called backward wiring of the, uh, the, the wiring of the retina and the mammalian eye, and the human eye. Well, it looked like it was wired uh, backwardly until more details came forward. And it turns out it's wired just precisely how it should be for uh, its overall function. And so quite frequently, Richard Dawkins, for instance, is constantly saying things that, you know, he says, well, any good designer could have produced something better. And I always want to say, well, try it. What are you talking about? I mean, we have yet to build something that's self-replicating and self-repairing, but that's uh, the very nature of biological organisms. And yeah, so, you know, one of those things uh, that uh, were often brought up at one point were junk DNA. And the headlines from the Austin American Statesman about 10 years ago, uh, it was on the front page even, uh, was junk DNA not so junky. Yeah. And it was the discovery that there was actually function there that we didn't know about, and we thought it was some kind of vestige or leftover uh, from, uh, uh, and was therefore bad design. You know, That's what, right. I mean, this was a very popular illustration of this because the junk DNA was basically the non-coding regions of the DNA that didn't seem to code for any proteins. Uh, and many people made the assumption that it didn't do anything and it didn't really have a function, and it was just sort of this detritus from the uh, uh, many millions of years of of evolution. Uh, but again, uh, this was an example of ignorance on the part of those who were making this interpretation. If you assume bad design, you're going to find evidence for it everywhere. Uh, so I think it's always important to get specific when people make this accusation. But even when you do that, it's important to realize that an argument for design is just that. It doesn't uh, require of itself that the design be perfect in some kind of ideal way. Well, in other words, it's not necessarily uh, an argument for optimal design. That's right. And that'd be kind of hard to pin down. I mean, what is the, uh, somebody could say, you know, that, that car could actually be better, better designed. Well, how so? 
well, it could have a, a better stereo system. Uh, you know, or somebody else would say, well, wait a minute, it could have seats that <laughs> reclined at a better angle. Well, that's right. And, but, you know, usually anything that's designed that's really complex, it has several functions. There's always a trade-off between the different variables. So a laptop computer, for instance, uh, you want it to have what's called constrained optimization. You could always have a laptop computer with a faster processing speed. On the other hand, it would cost a lot more money. Uh, you could have something with a bigger screen, but it would be a lot more bulky and perhaps a lot more fragile. It wouldn't be a laptop. It wouldn't fit in your lap. If That's right. And so a good laptop is going to be uh, a, a laptop that best combines and compromises all these competing objectives. And it's the same thing in the biological realm. Uh, you know, people often complain that, well, the panda's thumb is not especially useful for stripping bamboo. Well, first of all, it does perfectly fine for uh, feeding the panda, but that's to assume that the only function of a panda or of its thumb is to eat. But a panda is a part of an ecosystem, and maybe if you had a super powerful panda that could just strip bamboo like crazy, you'd end up destroying all the bamboo in the ecosystem. And so you've got to look at the details and realize that any highly complex design system is going to have all these competing objectives that have to be compromised one over the other. Mm. Yeah, Jay, I'm going to read you one last uh, quote from Dawkins arguing against uh, the design argument. And he says that Darwin provided a simpler explanation of design. His way is a gradual incremental improvement, starting from very simple beginnings and working up step by step by tiny incremental steps to more complexity, more elegance, more adaptive perfection. Each step is not too improbable for us to countenance, but when you add them up cumulatively over millions of years, you get these monsters of improbability, like the human brain and the rainforest. It should warn us against ever again assuming that because something is complicated, God must have done it. How do you respond? Well, I, first of all, I completely agree with Dawkins that it should warn us against the assumption that just because something is complicated, God, God must have done it. Uh, in principle, something could be put together by a Darwinian process. The question is whether in any particular instance it has been. Dawkins is famous for building thought experiments that are completely uh, disconnected to the actual evidence. And so you, you assume a so-called smooth fitness landscape in which these systems could be put together this way. But if you actually look at systems in biology, they almost never tend to be this way. They tend to be the kinds of systems that fall apart very quickly if you remove one of the parts. So that they're just the kinds of things that you would not expect on uh, Dawkins' simple Darwinian scenario, in which each step along the way confers a survival advantage. That's the kind of claim that can and should be tested with real biological structures. And whenever it is tested, it very rarely turns out the way Dawkins would have you believe. Well, Jay, unfortunately, we're going to have to bring our time to an end, but the intelligent design movement has suffered several setbacks, but... Tell us about some of the successes ID has had over the years. Well, frankly, I think the success is, first of all, simply the new evidence that's, that's come to the fore, certainly in the last 15 years. I mean, many of the arguments that you hear now are much more rigorous than design arguments in previous generations, and they're based on brand new evidence, evidence that wouldn't have been available in some cases even 15 years ago. Uh, the other thing is that intelligent design and the argument has shows no signs of going away. In fact, it's being discussed internationally, and uh, practically every widely read person knows something about the debate. And so despite various skirmishes in public school classrooms and in courts of law about the permissibility of these ideas in the public schools, uh, the truth and the strength of the argument is not going to be decided ultimately by circuit court judges. Fantastic. Well, what can those of us who are not in the scientific field, what can we do to help out in bringing intelligent design to the forefront on the academic arena? Well, 
certainly you can support those academics that are pursuing this type of research. I'm a, a safe philosopher at a think tank, so I'm not at risk. But there are a lot of design theorists at various universities and colleges, many of them under pressure. And if you have connections with those colleges or universities, do what you can by calling and contacting presidents and those in uh, positions of authority to make sure that those academics are allowed to continue in their pursuit and to support the research of places like the Discovery Institute, which support purely on private funds the work of design scholars. You say you're safe, Jay, but uh, only to a certain extent, because you guys definitely get out there, uh, you yourself, stuck your neck way out at SMU, Southern Methodist University, and are willing to field questions from students, from faculty, and from uh, the public. Absolutely. And, you know, at the moment, the the worst things people do is say nasty things about you. And so I figure (laughs) uh, if we didn't have some people opposed to us, we probably wouldn't be doing anything very important. But the reality is that certainly young scientists that deal in this issue often put their careers at jeopardy in order to pursue the truth as they see it. Yes, our guest has been Dr. Jay Richards with the Discovery Institute and the book and DVD you're going to want to get, The Privilege Planet, with him and Dr. Guillermo Gonzalez. So, Dr. Richards, thanks for being with us this week. My pleasure for being with you. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. There's a new feature on our website called iShows, where you can download each individual show for just 250 on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want. And we've got some of the top scholars on there. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.